Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Ask yourself, do you really love this work? Right? Because it's work. And what kind of person you are. Think about the people and the business work culture that exists, right? I love being on set. Even though you're getting up at the crack of dawn or staying up really late. I love working with people. Honestly, it's a joy to get to know people, right? And if you don't think so, this is not for you. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Glad you're here. Hope you enjoyed the last episode as much as I do and you're in for a treat for part two with Rachel Watanabe-Batan. She is fantastic, inspirational, impactful, and incredible. And I just want to let you know that she really impressed me because she's somebody who has worked on so many different things. And she not only works on them in the traditional sense of executive producing and producing, but she's also the type of person who found her affiliation early on with people like Quincy Jones and Danny Glover and Propaganda Films and continued doing great work, which begot great work. And then she started working with musical artists. And then once you work with Diddy, chances are somebody hears about it and then you work with Faith Evans. And then once you work with Faith Evans, somebody hears about it and then you work with Usher. And then before you know it, you're working with everybody, like the Wu-Tang Clan. And if you're working with respected artists, maybe not necessarily in that order, people hear about it. People hear when you do great work. When you work with great executives, other executives hear about it. When you produce great films or critically acclaimed films that exceed the expectations of everybody producing them, directing them, putting the money up for them, people know that you exist, they understand you. And then when you also have a cause, you have a point of view, you don't just do the job but you also want to be in a situation where you tell stories that reframe history, culture, where it connects the cause, the money, 
and cinema, then you're doing that additional work. And if you take a political stance, it's risky, but you're still in a situation where you're doing what you love best and you're doing what you believe in. And then when that happens, people will call you, just like they did for Sneakerella. And she worked on that film, and I tell you something, all of you listening, I am not the kind of person whose lane it is to watch a movie like Sneakerella. I'm a comedy guy. I've always been a comedy guy. I love the lane of how comedy and drama dissect, but also at the end with comedy, it still comes across with the message, with the laugh. This film, the way it's produced, the way it's directed, it really, really, truly blew me away. And if any of you have been listening a long time, that doesn't happen that often. And the last thing probably that I wanted to do was to go to Disney Plus on my night off and watch a film called Sneakerella. But I had an open mind, as you should, because this movie deserved the 11 Emmy nominations and deserved the four Emmys at one. And once you watch it, you'll understand why. It's truly impactful, it's extraordinary, it's inspirational, and it really, really blew me away. And I know you're going to enjoy it tremendously. And I'm saying that because of the trajectory, not only of my guest today and what she's been through to get to this point, but I'm also sharing with you that this person's work has made it so that people call her and bring her on to projects. And that's what you want in your life in this business. I don't care if you're a comedian, a radio personality, a writer, a director, a singer, a manager. You have to build your legend one incremental job at a time. And as you do that throughout your career and you continue to do great work like Rachel has done, then I guarantee you that you'll have the kind of career that she's having. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and Seaman. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Let's go way, way back for a second. Take us back to where you grew up, what your family was like, the socioeconomic dynamic, and what was your first inspiration to getting into this crazy business? I've had a number of homes growing up, but primarily I grew up in New York City. I come from an incredibly multiracial family. I'm the eldest of 
many kids, although I am the only child of my two parents who met in grad school and were together to form me. And then actually until my wedding had never been in the same place uh, again. Um, although I very close, especially to my mom and um, became close to my biological dad when I was in college. I visited Nigeria, very close to all of that family. And then my mom married my stepdad uh, who is really my dad, my daddy, Phil Batten, when I was five, four or five, I can't remember. I was at the wedding and, you know, there's lots of pictures. But it informs, well, the reason I raised this is I also have pictures as a baby of my adoptive family who actually named me Rachel Don Watanabe because I was born in 1966, a mixed child before Loving versus Virginia was, uh, had made interracial marriage and thus interracial people legal. So it, though my very being was legal in New York, it wouldn't have been in Mississippi, right? And um, my mom, grad school, my dad left to go to the Biafran war to fight because he's Igbo in Nigeria and his people were being massacred. <laughs> I laugh because it's so horrific, but it's all those images of, you know, Africans with bloated bellies and flies were from that war, um, which most people in Britain know more about. And him leaving, right, my, gave my mom the sort of decision of what to do. And think about abortion was illegal at the time, contextually. And there were many other ironic things that I won't go into, but essentially I ended up uh, living with a friend of Dorothy Day, um, who led the Catholic worker, um, Catholic Charities was a sort of progress, very progressive um, Catholic uh, woman and um, was friends with my mom and her goddaughter was looking to adopt someone. So I lived in the, a log cabin on the border of Canada in Vermont um, in an area called the Lost Nation in a log cabin, you know, like a couple hundred acres at the time. And my- You lived in a log cabin. Yeah. That was my first home. My adoptive dad, Alan Leonard, who just passed this year, um, picked me up, wrapped me in his coat and drove whatever, nine, 10 miles up to the Northeast Kingdom. And then eventually he broke up with his wife, um, Ellen, and I moved to Massachusetts. I have all these crazy stories because I lived with a family that were stained glass makers and also very progressive Catholics. So it was really rural then, but I still go back there for family reunions, which uh, I ended up getting back in touch. Uh, but I, you know, they were really, they would do interracial food movements with like Ab Abby Hoffman before he was known Abby Hoffman. Um, and Dorothy Day, who was the person that helped knew all these people they were all part of you know these artist movements and she's actually maybe up for beatification by this current pope um you know as, and she was named one of the five most interesting americans um by pope francis along with mlk and this woman was sort of my saving grace and if it hadn't been for her i don't i probably would have been in an orphanage uh discarded right because i was like a bag of weed legal in one state, not legal in another state, you know, regardless of who I was, little Rachel. And I think about that 
when I learned of it as an um, kind of a young adult, really, my mom didn't share all these stories with me till I was a little bit older. But I grew up always around these people. I eventually went back to my mom when I was just before two, because some things changed. And they asked me, open adoptions, if I could do that, um, if my mom wanted to do that. And so I moved from, you know, first, very, very rural uh, Vermont, to rural Massachusetts, to New York City, Lower East Side, um, where my mom lived and she taught, you know, in New York. And it was a big contentious time in the 68, you know, about community empowerment, you know, in the schools in particular. And um, my parents were teachers and activists. And my mom was always talking to us about, you know, what the people around us are meant you know, their lives, that they were meaningful and, and fighting for people's rights and to have better lives. And um, she met my stepfather, who is the one I credit with teaching me about music, you know, and they would always have these very pithy discussions, like, you know, about dialectical materialism, theater, you know, films, we would just watch movies. And so my entire sort of childhood was, particularly in the Lower East Side, there were always other people, lots of teachers, factory workers around who were progressives, um, very, very multiracial community, a lot of lefty Jews that would take care of me um, because my mom was out giving speeches sometimes. And I loved it. I loved being with all these different families. Ruth and Bert Lessig, also one of my mentors in terms of film and reading and art, you know. I love, I'm still fond of Altakakas uh, to this day because many people shepherded me. And I think when I look at, you know, my family, you know, plenty of them are Asian. My mom's completely Japanese American. Um, but, you know, she was an enemy alien. And then at some point without doing anything became a model minority, right? The idea of branding to me is so about what people need you for at the time, what's useful. And I don't, you know, I understand how it works. I mean, how did I get to go to, you know, old, get these check marks in school, right? Being able to work um, at studios. And, um, you know, I always sort of had this idea that, you know, bring as many people along as you go and to also have a lot of joy. And so when I went to high school, it was, commuting from the Northeast Bronx by then Co-op City, which is a middle-class sort of, you know, Michelama development that was mostly teachers and um, 1199 workers, you know, hospital, all these different people, but, you know, working class, middle-class people um, that was a planned community. And I would commute down to Harlem, where music and art was at the time. Um, we called it the Castle on the Hill. And that was really, you know, I always watched musicals with my dad and movies, you know, whether it was Casablanca or, you know, um, as I mentioned, something like Fame that came out the year. Um, and I loved Alan Parker. I still love his movies, the commitments, you know, just the idea that he could bring these sort of themes. I mean, really, Fame was so unusual, the film I'm talking about, and then, you know, a series spinoff. But I grew up in a New York where, like, Joe Papp 
you know, had the public and we would just go down there and a chorus line, you know, you go see Joe Papp was a communist, which, you know, I didn't know at the time, but I learned later. And I, what it taught me was that you don't have to just be interested in money to make money because a chorus line was the most successful show on Broadway for years. And I think, you know, still Shakespeare in the park is, you know, monumental. And I got to see people like, as a high school student, Denzel Washington in a soldier's play, going to see the Negro Ensemble Theater with my senior class, my AP English class. And I still have his autograph because he wasn't a star, but we knew, we were like, who is this, right? And I still today, I work- un un Undeniable. Undeniable, right? And the playwright, is actually good friends, Charles Fuller. He, it turns out he was a running buddy of a woman, Vertimae Smart Grosvenor, who I'm doing a documentary film about with Julie Dash, another one of my muses influencers. I don't like to use the word muse because it means she's not doing anything, but you know, people who who I could see myself reflected. And I think that motivates me. You know, why do I do the work that is so underpaid? I mean, producers do not make unless you're like have a whole factory and you do set up a company you know indie producers um it's very difficult this is not an indie film even though it's film within a television company but you know it's streaming you know and you change the game for producers and again we have to work smarter too right but this is not a, um, a business certainly not if you want to be a producer out there making stuff and meeting with new talent. You're always interested in connecting people, right? Like, oh my God, you got to see this new comedian, right? You got to see this kid I just saw dancing. Like, I will be in the subway listening to musicians and encouraging them because, you know, we had the kids who were the subway dancers in Sneakerella that are showtime. I know those kids, right? Sometimes I duck so I don't get hit. But the point is like those kids, you can't, regular dancers, you know, doing their moves are not going to throw themselves against steel bars with joy, right? Like you just can't learn that. It takes a kind of hardiness, which is what we're looking for, right? When you're casting, when you're crewing up, like it's so joyous, but difficult, right? And people used to say, this isn't so glamorous. I'm like, not at all. When you're up at four in the morning with, but you make it fun, you know, you get your cappuccino or whatever in hand, you figure out a system to keep yourself healthy and you, and you just keep a good spirit. I would love to do a little six degrees of separation with you. I'm going to mention a name or something or a phrase, say a sentence or two about your thoughts, and then we'll just keep going, like almost like a speed round. Well, one thing I, I want to give a shout out to Christopher Scott who is, you know, a co-producer and was very involved with the movement, working with our choreography team. He, um, you know, looked, they all looked in his whole choreography and looked at tapes, but it was really important. You know, he's worked with, um, you know, on many musicals, including In the Heights and countless others, but he is a New York City 
kid, mother, you know, teacher, activist also. And so we're all thinking about these things. Like who did we leave out that we know should be seen by people? Contradiction and struggle. So I would say one of the things that when I was telling you before about my mom, you know, going back to her when I was a little kid, my mom had just been working at China Books, which was the first business in New York to deal with China after the revolution. And so there were all these little, you know, children's books and also Mao Zedong's Little Red Book that we just had a lot of them because she just had a lot of leftover books. And this is also the family friends who, you know, were literally at my birth. And Shakna, Charles Rosen, I guess, had bequeathed us with all these books. And I kind of learned to read on these books. So I would read a passage because they were little. They look like little kids' books. Because to me, it's sort of about like what these things are, right? And they would be quotations from Chairman Mao Zedong. And I remember one passage that I would just read. Contradiction and struggle are universal and absolute. And then it, you know, it's like the methods of resolving and blah, blah, blah. But I think conceptually, you know, regardless of, you know, political persuasion, this idea as a little child resonated with me that, you know, within any relationship, there is this kind of struggle or battle going on and that we each, even with good intentions, are also likely doing the same things that we are critical of. And so there was this idea of self-criticism that fascinated me, even as a little kid, because, you know, it's a contentious time. You hear people saying stuff. And it was a way that I could make sense of, you know, which today I can't even imagine, but people saying stuff and like whether to believe it. Oh, this government is bad. This one is good. This leader is good. And it was a lot of chaos around me and figuring it out to create an order and some sort of unifying thing. But for me, I would just say that it's about the ability to do things that are both very commercial and also very um, independent or maybe um, activist driven, but that both of those things are my taste. Like I love pop culture, you know, and booty shaking videos. Like I love all that. I made them, but I also love you know, watching what some might consider incredibly highbrow, slow moving films, like equally, I love them. And I think we should be allowed to have that because that's what human beings are, nuanced. And other, and as a sidebar, how did you describe yourself as a person before it was popular to say an other? Well, other is sort of tongue in cheek, right? Because it's like the box that you get to check if you're like black, African American, or African descendant, uh, Asian, you know, blah blah blah. Like there would be Latin, non non white, his non white Hispanic. Like there would be all these categories, you know. Sometimes like twenty growing up, and it was always sort of a almost like really a comedy for me, right? Because and so I used the term other. In many ways, like I, I refer to my mom's partner as my other mother, 
right? Uh, Maria Elena is like, I don't know. She's not like my mom. She's like my other mother. I don't know what, and I have to say it with a Bronx, New York accent because that's how I think about it. Other, like, it, whereas to some people, I guess it means something alien, you know, because there's also that um, that's been attached to members of my family. Even though my mom, like I'm fourth generation on the Japanese American side, but my mom was the enemy alien. I'm first generation on the black side, Nigerian. So it's sort of this, you know, being other, um, within my family, you know, I could relate to being the spare, right? Even though I'm the first, right? I am complicated with my being come questions, uh, often asked by me, right? Which made people uncomfortable or, um, and not just about myself, but about everything. So I think I'm always interested in who's the other, right? Whether I'm making a film about undocumented people, uh, which was the first movie I made, with Lauren Greenfield about marrying for a green card. And I was like, everybody I know in Boston is white and Irish that's undocumented. And so what's this story about the other? Is maybe if we see the other as ourselves, which, you know, think about Ukraine and the refugee, it is what is the story that can be more inclusive with, with also recognizing that it's not always easy for everyone because we've been taught to stay, you know, in our little enclaves. January 6th. <laughs> okay, so January 6th, I think about many things. One is because it was, I just come back from Sneakerella, the, like right before Christmas, I thought I was coming for a couple of weeks and then some reason I couldn't get back. Uh, as some Canadian Air Canada person decided I did not have the right stamp or whatever. And it was a blessing because I ended up having only a few weeks with my dad. So January 6th was part of a whole host of things I asked my father to live. I was like, yo, you can live till, you know, 82 and we'll have the big balloons and, you know, wait till I get back and you're going to watch, you're going to see the inauguration and they're going to do the swearing in and blah, blah, blah. So there was all like, big preparation sort of, of, and I really was like, you should live. So to see Kamala Harris, you know, a Blasian woman like your daughters, you know, because my other two sisters are also um, black and Asian, right? So it was like, how can you imagine this would happen in your lifetime? So in my mind, when I think about January 6th, I think about, you know, as you're like trying to do mixes and sound and holy F, like what is happening? And it didn't surprise me because the lead up, you're like, they're coming, they're coming, they're going to organize. And they've been organizing. I had friends that you know, did work you know, with Jim Ridgway you know, decades ago, one of my best friends, um, you know, Blood in the Field, all these different you know, groups that are out in the Midwest organizing, militia groups. So I've known for 30 something years, right? Or just pockets of real virulent racists that exist in this country. And so I used to battle, you know, neo-Nazis and Klan when I was in high school um, by battle, like if they came to attack us and we had a giant pack of leaflets, we'd hit them with it as they were trying to hit us. And in my mind, I'm not as naive as some people, right? I, I love to make things that are really joyful, but I also recognize that people are angry and having, you know, grown up with some 
family that are, you know, my adoptive family, my adoptive father was actually a Trump supporter and got his news from the White House. And we'd have, and a libertarian before that. And, but he lived in the woods and, you know, you go visit him. He has several shotguns, they'd be there. So my idea is not like, oh, those other people, some of these people are in my family, right? Because I, as a, in college, I got back uh, with that adoptive family and my biological father in Nigeria and became close to all of them and visiting them. And so I, it prevents you from otherizing when you know the people, right? And so I think about all that um, as a reckoning that's been happening. I mean, this country, even though we don't teach it in schools, has been having race riots forever, right? This is like in the fabric of our culture, unfortunately, um, going both ways and, you know, um, people trying to liberate as well. And the arsenal is something, you know, that's very rooted in American culture, right? Of the American revolution and the militia, all those things. And, you know, quite ironically in this June, one my um, former business partner who had a music video company with Nick Quested has done, you know, he's done documentaries, but we used to make lots of music, the top 10 videos, right, for BET, MTV, all those. And he was the surprise witness for the January 6th committee. And he was embedded with the Proud Boys and got that footage of the secret meeting in the underground um, parking lot. Right? And um, between the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys leaders, which is what made it conspiracy. And it made me very proud. Like all of my friends were texting and then we're like, go Nick! Like, you know, because here's this British, you know, b-boy kid that he and Stretch Armstrong and Bobito Garcia, you know, they used to throw, throw sheets and pillows parties and hip hop, you know, were great on the radio. But they're like these people, my friends who are part of, you know, this other huge cultural movement that makes a lot of money in the world, right? That people may often not take that seriously. He was part of the takedown of these incredible, well, these horrific people that were attacking the capital workers, you know, all the stuff that goes on um, as we watch, you know, another bit of bad behavior or, you know, happening on, and Capitol Hill, it's all interesting to me, right? Because they're just people, right? And these ideas of the, and the pedestals we put them on, we really need to be more critical and think about and be more active in participating in our governments and not just chastising people after the fact, right? You have to be involved in the world you want to create. And um, maybe that's what the January 6th people were thinking too. I just, you know, um, I'm about not working from fear, but really thinking about solutions that will make place for everybody. Propaganda films. <laughs> okay, so you see a theme here, right? Um, so Propaganda is the production company, Propaganda Satellite um, film back in the day that, you know, it was just where I landed and I wanted to be right after finishing at Warner Brothers um, and doing a film with Peter Weir, I really wanted to um, be a part of kind of popular culture. It was really the heyday of these music videos. Some of the best directors uh, of the time were there. Dominic Senna, David Fincher, uh, Antoine Fuqua, Sanji. I mean, there were just so many, right? And, and it was also 
beautifully, it was such good training for production. And I say this because they, you know, oftentimes like I look at the music video and commercial world and, and the overworking of producers and production staff and the lack of planning and infrastructure now that, you know, obviously a lot of this has to do with the money that goes, that you can get out, what structures, but they had a building of accountants. You had, in addition to the directors and all of their assistants, right, the whole team, the office manager, my friend Joyce Washington's a fabulous producer. Our receptionist was Raina King, Regina's King's sister. So Regina would always come in, you know, um, Spike Jones was there, who's one of the directors. And like he and his assistant, they would dress up, you know, and right when they were doing the sabotage video, um, all my friends were doing, you know, were part of that as well. And we would dress up like kids in costume, you know, um, myself, you know, some days I'd come in, I was like, oh, I love Frida Kahlo today. And I'd have my twisted braids with flowers and long curtain-like skirts, right? Another day, you know, I'd be in my, you know, Adidas wear, right? It just was a place kind of like Music and Art High School to play, um, where we worked really long hours, don't get me wrong, but, you know, the tools, uh, the camaraderie, the sharing of um, talking about photographers, you know, um, with Antoine and many other directors, just, you know, while he's doing a Stevie Wonder video at, you know, and then there would be things like Intravision, right, which I just worked on um, with Jeff Bridges and Peter Weir at Fearless, but now I'm back in the same place for a music video, and, you know, the mentors, some of the friends, my friend Caroline um, Matchett was there, and she's still one of my best friends. She was at my wedding this year, you know, and Joyce Washington, who was the office manager also. They are it was a bonding because it was really difficult, but they would make you balance your budget to the penny. So it was really brilliant creatively, but it was so well run. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my blueprint for success a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. Your proudest moment in show business. Wow. My proudest moment in show business. Well, I would say the, the Emmy win was pretty great. It, it's definitely up there because of the recognition for all the hard work. Uh, the Emmy win for Sneakerella, you know, it was pretty gratifying that the things that we fought for um, and championed, you know, and the 
so many of the people that were first timers on this kind of project got nominated, right? And my friend Jane starts, it was her first win and she's been nominated many times. And so I didn't go into it in some ways with great expectations, but I'm kind of, a, I just was like, we're gonna win, we're gonna win. And I, I would say to the extent that I had these, I've always known that we, we've had these, I had these crown necklaces made for everyone at RAP, uh, all the cast, many, all our department heads, uh, and then like later John Sally, a bigger one and chosen, but the necklace Kira King wears in the movie. And I wore it for ages and I actually just recently took it off, but it was like a talisman bonding us, right? That a belief. Um, and it is literally the crown icon. So, you know, I'm into iconography. So I felt proud of that. And I would just say my other proudest moment is recent, which was at the Met where I worked very, like was one of my first jobs, right? Like giving tours in the arms and armor room and going there, you know, in high school and junior high, although I, I worked on an exhibition and I guess it's sort of show business in that it's the Met you know, um, Costume Institute, right? And the Met Gala and everybody who's in show business is there these days. And um, Julie Dash was asked to do a couple of the rooms and she was remote and I'm here. And we've worked very closely on a number of projects together. And the rooms, one was of Anne Lowe, the designer who did Jacqueline Kennedy's wedding gown um, and many other people like Olivia de Havilland's, you know, Oscar winning um, one of her Oscar winning gowns, um, but was really unrecognized in many ways. And working with the curators there in the American wing and costume, Andrew Bolton may be one of my favorite um, collaborators, just such respect for him. And, um, and the other room was uh, the Greek revival room. And Julie had Helen of Troy, it's the story of Helen of Troy, and you know, I won't get into like the Aphrodite, all the different goddesses, and I am a huge fan of Greek mythology, and just what that all means to us, right? And um, Helen, Julie made Helen of Troy Eartha Kitt, because... Uh, and it was a 3D modeling, you know, sculpture head and then beautifully like made look like marble along with the other statues and goddesses wearing these beautiful um, designs by Mad Madame Edda Hens, who was part of the whole kind of um, for, did a huge fashion show in the Met in the Greek, you know, statues exhibit. And I love that area. I used to sketch there as a kid. Uh, and do all the little Cupid sculpture. And I was a sculptor also. Um, that was my, probably if I hadn't been a filmmaker, I would have gone to do that. And there was Eartha's head beautifully as Helen of Troy because Orson Welles had cast her as Helen of Troy in a play um, that he did. He plays Faustus. And the we had music, uh, you know, I, listening to Eartha's music that, you know, she used to perform at the Carlisle. And it was a song, Uskadara, you know, which is in, is a Trojan, you know, is a, is a Turkish song, right, about Troy. And it was like, the whole thing was very, like, people say, oh, why is in the Greek revival room, they're speaking Turkish, right? I said, well, where's Troy? And in Turkey, 
right? And of course, right? And so people would be open to it. And I think the proudest moment for me is that when the critics and um, particularly in the Anne Lowe room with where people have been confused, like there's these flowing costumes and that represent Anne Lowe and they're supposed to look like, you know, these, uh, dancers, Central African dancers, and nobody was getting it. We brought in a person who could do it. And Anna Wintour had been totally confused, like what's happening in this room, you know? And um, we spent many, you know, extra days bringing in designers, my friend Ashaka Givens, and um, who's known for styling like Erica Badu and people like this. And, and it had to be translated culturally. And when we finished, she, everybody got it. And it was in fact, the fashion and art critics favorite rooms. Um, it was Tom Ford's favorite room and Tom Ford's room, you know, with all these sort of, you know, kind of dynamic figures was Julie's favorite room. And, and what for me, the reason it's my, one of my proudest moments is because it's not about how much money or any of those things, or even if my name is in there, but it's about how many people went through that exhibition that had a new take um, that could see things differently. And I don't know what they'll do with that. Now that's exciting to me to have that kind of cultural impact. Awesome. awesome. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. Mm. So I guess I've had a few, you know, because at one point I think I was, really more serious about directing. You know, I, I started out as a director. I had my first movie very early on um, before, you know, finishing college. And um, it was just a short, but it was still, you know, on air. And I think the disappointment is more about very early on. You know, it's not, I don't even know that I was in show business, but I had already made a movie, right? Um, and... I remember wanting to make a movie that I was making already, but going for funding, you know, um, for a movie called Nappy Headed Jap, which is me really, right? And it's a kind of, you know, thinking about Chris Rock's good hair, um, you know, people would used to say that all the time. And I'd be like, what? Cause I have nappy hair on my Asian side. Like it's all relative, like all this stuff that people, you know, project onto you. And I remember that the funder, who was quite a well-known um, filmmaker, um, after like, you know, like a half an hour of talking and doing, you know, talking about the, the different social movements that I wanted to talk about, at the end, he just said, so you want to do a Roots movie? And I was kind of horrified, right? Because, um, there's nothing like Kunta Kinte roots or anything, what I was talking about. And I realized that it was okay. This is, by the way, um, Bob Gardner, um, very well respected, you know, family, uh, filmmaker and, you know, family, the Gardners. Um, but that it was, I said, so you could go around the world and do things about people you know nothing about. And that's what filmmaking is. But I, who know something about these people, am diminished to be a Roots film in your view. I said, wow, I don't think I want to make documentaries. 
because of the patronage part. And I, my other film was like a kind of a deals with real people. Everyone is undocumented in the movie, except the person who is fighting for a green card, by the way, which is by choice, right? Even if you use their names, um, you know, their last name and their first name, because it, the whole film, you know, was really about the process also, right? Of empowering these people we cast in theaters and, you know, the Irish Echo and pubs, you know, like all kinds of stuff. And so what I recognized in that moment that even in the world of documentaries, the idea of authenticity was actually threatening to people because especially and they had to minimize it because it was something they didn't have. And so therefore it didn't have value. And I read to Tocqueville and all kinds of other, like I, you know, let us now praise famous men, James H. E. Walker. Like I'm a, I was a sociology student, right? Before uh, switching to film. And I think, you know, with all the elation and the inspiration of people like Mira Nair coming to speak and, you know, all the great teachers I had, what I recognized is that when people sometimes see me and I looked like, you know, I'm in my fifties now. And I look like a real little kid. I'm saying when I was that age, like I look and I laugh. They didn't really take me seriously, or I wasn't the brand they wanted to tell that story. And I always know that that is something I deal with when I pitch something. What might be a good partnership? I also am better at like making space for people or or knowing what they're about. And the other thing is that. It let me realize that, because it hurt a lot, but it also set me up to know that I had to go for people who cared about me. And it, when I went to California, I really um, met with people that had made films that resonated with me, um, that I thought might have careers that were interesting. And that's how I ended up with Paula Weinstein and Mark Rosenberg because they had been in SDS, Students for Democratic Society, had gone to Columbia. And when the LA rebellion came, you know, they turned our office into Organizing Central. And, um, you know, I, there've been, I, they both, you know, one was head of Warner Brothers, the other of United Artists. And those are my mentors, right? People who had made a dry white season with Uzan Palsy, um, you know, that, it was the first time I saw a person, Zakes Mackay kills the guy at the end himself. And you don't know what it was. He saved himself, right? That was monumental. I mean, it barely happens now. So I think about those things and just think about how um, the decisions to work with different people are spurred by that rejection actually. And that minimizing of me in that moment, right, a, a, a mixed kid who had gone to Harvard at 16, who was definitely an overachiever, to be thought of in that way, and only certain stories could I tell or didn't, by this very elegant filmmaker. It's not that he was so bad, it was that he was so normal, was the horror of it. My last question is, what advice do you have for the young person who has gone through the kind of trials and tribulations and adversity that you have and how can they 
get to the place where you are and have the kind of amazing career that you've had and you're having? Well, I think the first thing is to ask yourself, do you really love this work? Right? Because it's work. It's culture work. It's great. Um, and what kind of person you are. Do you need a regular job? In which case, there are plenty of them in this industry, right? You know, not that they're easy to get by any means, whether it's at an agency or a studio or a production company. Um, but, you know, if you're not sure, try out the different areas. Think about the people and the kind of business work culture that exists, right? I love being on set, even though you're getting up the crack of dawn or staying up really late. I love working with people to create the work itself, what you're going to see on screen. I like talking to them and figuring it out and just that whole process, right? I do not like, although I've done it, I, I enjoy it when it's the right fit very much. I can't be in an office all the time unless I'm going out to do stuff, right? That's just me. There are other people who would not want to be up at that time, right? Um, I There are days and I have friends who are... Um, fabulous, really well-paid and creative hair and makeup artists. I think, oh my God, why didn't I not do that? Oh, I know I didn't because I can't, I'm not sycophantic, right? So I, it's a very difficult job in addition to the skill. I think, you know, like I, I worked, you know, I've done costumes for the American Repertory Theater, then on music videos, hair and makeup, like, and got to work with some great people. Like I loved putting foundation like just touching up one of the bgs right like that's like i got to touch the person this is like i was young enough to be able to just explore right the things being a coordinator understanding how things work and where maybe you might find some colleagues and really the other thing is um i've carried people with me throughout these journeys. Yes, the arenas have changed, but um, the quality people that I've met stay with one another. Like they're, um, the people I work with as filmmakers are many of them I've known for years. And maybe I didn't work with them for, but I've known them for 20 something years. I'm working on a project now with a dear friend from college, um, Christina Kiley, and it's about her family at Harvard or, you know, dad was a house master of Adam's house and um, head of the English department. Like, and her mom is Czech and a beautiful scientist and, you know, just incredible kind of like university way, but has a deeper story. Like, and, and her grandfather's who Victor Laszlo from Casablanca is based on, right? So I think it's to look around you at your friends that you're coming up with. Those are the people that will be your allies. And then, you know, get to know people who are cinematographers, hair make, like all across, actors, writers, like those are the people you're going to work with. It's not one department. I think as a producer, don't stop at just the, the writing, right? Or the um, casting, like these people need your support throughout. And I think especially, you know, in television, the pace is very quick um, and the producers are really that continuity in the lives. And honestly, it's a joy to get to know people, right? And if you don't think so, this is not for you. 
because half of it is, you know, your social skills and psychology and empathy, deep empathy for telling people's stories, even when it's not convenient. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. Cause you're going far. Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever.